Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton DeFrance. Does Stephen contradict the historical and mathematical details of the Old Testament? Would it matter if he did? Find out as we study the difficulties in Acts chapter 7. On our previous episode, we examined Stephen's sermon before the Sanhedrin. This is the longest sermon recorded in Acts, 53 verses as our Bible organizes the Scripture. And we broke from our usual style in its examination. I opted not to give a careful phrase-by-phrase analysis of every verse, partly because of the length and partly because it seemed to me that such an approach would cause us to miss the real message of the sermon. Instead, we used a suggested structure for the sermon and looked at each section, highlighting the material and expressions that fed into the overall theme and moved the presentation forward to its conclusion. If you've not listened to that episode marked episode 20 on the podcast, or if it's easier to find it this way, the episode covering Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 53, then I would encourage you to go and listen to it before continuing with this episode. While I think it was necessary for us to take the approach we did, the downside was that we passed over some very interesting, curious, and challenging features of Stephen's sermon and may have left some unanswered questions in the minds of some of our listeners. Consequently, I want to spend a whole episode considering those before we move forward in the text. In our approach to the Bible as Christians, we take the Scripture as a product not of man alone, but the work of God himself. I believe absolutely the testimony of the Apostle Paul when he wrote, "...all Scripture is given by inspiration of God." 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15, and of Peter, when he said, No prophecy of Scripture is of any private origin, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1 verses 20 and 21. One of the essential consequences of the inspiration or superintendent oversight of the writing of Scripture by the Holy Spirit is what theologians often call inerrancy. I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, and by that I mean that I believe whatever the Bible declares to be true is actually true. It corresponds to reality. That is originally produced, the Bible makes no errors or mistakes and no false or misleading statements. I take that definition of inerrancy from Bible scholar and theologian Dr. Jack Cottrell, and I find it to be both logical and biblical. If the Bible is the product of God in the way that it attests itself to be, then there can be no other conclusion. For Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, this conviction has two necessary implications. First, that Stephen actually preached what Luke says that he preached. Even if Luke's account of the sermon has some kind of abbreviations or abridgments, 
there can be no alterations to the degree that it can no longer be said, these are the true words of Stephen. He really said this. If our manuscripts and translations really represent the writings of Luke, then what we read in Acts must be taken to really be the sermon of Stephen. Second, what Stephen preached must harmonize with the rest of the Bible. This is because all that is true must harmonize. And if the rest of the Bible is inspired and therefore inerrant, it must harmonize with whatever Stephen said. This is because not only was Luke's record of Stephen's sermon inspired, but Stephen's sermon was itself inspired also. Luke stresses three times that Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit and supernaturally gifted in his preaching, Acts chapter 6, verses 5 and 8, and 7 and verse 55, and that he spoke as a messenger of God, Acts chapter 6 and verse 14. In fact, Stephen himself claimed that when his audience rejected his message, they were resisting the Holy Spirit, Acts 7 and verse 51. And he put his own preaching on the same level as the preaching of the prophets and of the Lord Jesus himself as to its truthfulness and divine authority, Acts 7 and verse 52. All of these things being acknowledged puts us on the horns of a dilemma. We believe Stephen, and we believe the rest of the scripture, but a number of critics claim that Stephen's sermon irreconcilably contradicts the rest of the scripture in at least six respects, covering history and mathematical figures. Now, some people might respond that those sorts of details are nothing to be concerned over because they do not affect the important matters of faith, like the nature of Jesus or the reality of the resurrection or the love of God. However, the reality is that the whole Christian faith is based on reports of history. And if the details of those histories are inaccurate and therefore unreliable, then the histories themselves cannot be accepted and the propositions which grow out of them fall as well. If most or any of the histories in the Bible are inaccurate and unreliable, then any of them could be. The veracity of the Christian faith rests on the accuracy of the Bible. Stephen's sermon is a significant battleground of the concept of inerrancy, and for a short while we want to consider the objections and in some cases a few of the possible resolutions that may be reasonably and confidently accepted in defense of biblical inerrancy. Before we begin, however, I want to make a few important points about inerrancy in general that we need to keep in mind in order to fully appreciate some of the issues we're going to discuss. When affirming the inerrancy of the Bible, we must recognize that biblical inerrancy does not mean inerrant manuscripts. The transmission of the Bible through the production of hand copies of manuscripts was not miraculous, and there were human errors that created issues for likely every manuscript ever produced. It is possible to identify these issues and work out what the inerrant original text said with certainty. But sometimes the manuscripts used in certain translations have problems that create apparent but not actual problems within the Bible itself. 
The same is true of translations. No translation of the Bible from the original languages is inspired. And that means that all translations will likely have flaws that need to be corrected and worked through in order to have a more accurate representation of the inerrant original. Finally, human ignorance is a major factor. Many times we as readers simply do not understand something significant about what we're reading. Perhaps we do not understand the kind of language the writer is using, and we're taking literally what should be taken figuratively, or vice versa. Perhaps we're unaware of some other passage of Scripture or some fact of history or other piece of background information that, if we knew it, would make an apparent problem disappear. An answer and a resolution exist, but we do not know what it is. Consequently, there's going to be times when a challenging issue within the Bible cannot be easily answered, and it may be that there are several possible solutions, all of which could work, and one of which is right. We should not balk at this, as though it says something negative about the Bible, that all things are not readily obvious to us at first glance. Anyone who's ever communicated would agree that it is possible to say something that is absolutely true and still to be terribly misunderstood by others. If we misunderstand the Bible, we must simply be diligent to humbly work through our problem and find the solution if we can. So, with those preliminaries in view, we want to consider six common criticisms and concerns against the accuracy of Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. First, the location of Abraham's call. In Acts 7 verses 2 through 4, Stephen opens his discourse, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives, and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. The problem with this statement is that in Genesis 11, 31-32, the text has Abraham's father, Terah, leading the family out of Mesopotamia to Haran, and then Abraham receives his call in chapter 12 while in Haran, which is in Syria. The translators of the New King James Version remedy the apparent conflict by making the call in Genesis 12 past tense. The Lord had said. Thus, what is recorded in Genesis 12 may have been spoken earlier in Mesopotamia and is here mentioned by Moses to explain why Abraham and Lot left Haran after they had been there for a little while. However, there are other viable explanations as well. In Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 7, the scripture indicates that God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees as well as out of Haran. Thus, the best explanation seems to be that there were two calls. First, God called Abraham in Mesopotamia. The migration of the family is described as the action of Terah in Genesis 11, simply because he was the leader of the clan, as the old patriarch. But the motivation for the migration was that God had visited Abraham and commanded him to leave. 
When the family settled in the ancestral homeland of Haran, a city probably named after Abraham's deceased brother, likely due to Terah's age and poor health, God reaffirmed the call, and he beckoned Abraham to continue his journey of faith. So there's no real problem between Stephen and Moses so far as this issue is concerned. Second, we want to consider another problem that is a little bit more challenging. In Acts 7 and verse 4, Stephen says that Abraham left Haran when his father was dead. Genesis 12 and verse 4 says that Abraham was 75 years old at this time. Genesis 11:26 says that Terah was 70 years old when he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, if Terah was 70 when Abraham was born and died 75 years later, then he was 145 years old when he died. But Genesis 11.32 says that he was 205 years old when he died. So, some claim that Stephen has made the Bible to contradict itself. There are a number of legitimate and viable solutions to this problem. But the one that seems most likely to me is that this is not a problem with Stephen, but rather with the interpreters who conclude that Terah was 70 when Abraham was born. A legitimate interpretation of Genesis 11.26 is that Terah was 70 when he started having children. Likely, Haran was his oldest child, but it is almost certain that Abraham was not the oldest, and He was named first in this list of his siblings simply because of his importance in the book of Genesis. That's quite common. For instance, when Shem is listed first in the sons of Noah, though Japheth is clearly stated to have been the oldest if we compare Genesis 5.32 with 10.23. In this case, Terah began having sons at age 70, and he died at 205. Abraham was born 75 years before his father died, thus when his father was 130. As with the former issue, this is not a contradiction in the Bible, but a problem of interpretation. Again, in Acts 7 and verse 6, we have another problem. Stephen says, regarding God's prophetic promise to Abraham concerning Israel's slavery in and emancipation from Egypt, but God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. In assigning a duration of 400 years to the Egyptian captivity of Israel, Stephen agrees with at least one passage from the writings of Moses himself. This is the number given in the passage Stephen is quoting in Genesis 15, verses 13 through 14. In other words, Stephen is accurately quoting the passage. However, this is not the only word on the matter. In Exodus 12, verses 40 through 41, the Bible says, Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on the very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. You'll note that in this passage, as it appears in our English Old Testament, which is based on the Masoretic or traditional Hebrew manuscripts, the writer declares that the sojourn of the children of Israel in Egypt lasted 430 years. 
Then we have the testimony of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 17 that the giving of the law of Moses was 430 years after the promise was made to Abraham, which would make the Egyptian captivity actually limited to 215 years. So what do we make of all of this? Stephen does not create the problem, but he certainly seems to take a position on the subject, seemingly endorsing the Genesis figure, and that raises questions about the other statements. This is perhaps the most challenging of all the issues in Stephen's sermon, but there are actually several viable suggestions for its resolution, and I will simply offer the one that seems most reasonable to me, bearing in mind that there are other possibilities if you have issues with the ideas that I suggest. It seems best to take Paul's statement in Galatians as the most literal, thus applying the period of 430 years to the whole experience of Abraham's family from the time the promise was made to the time that they left Egypt. There are several reasons for this conclusion. First, Josephus, in his Antiquities of the Jews, endorses Paul's suggestion that the 430 years were not the time Israel was in Egypt, but the time from the promise made to Abraham. Book 2, chapter 15, section 2 says, They left Egypt 430 years after our forefather Abraham came into Canaan, but 215 years only after Jacob removed into Egypt. Second, Although this is contradicted by the standard Hebrew manuscripts of Exodus 12 and verse 40, the Old Greek translations, as well as the Coptic and Samaritan versions, add and Canaan to the passage, thus the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt and Canaan was 430 years, which would agree with Josephus and Paul's statement in Galatians. Third, the genealogy of Moses recorded in Genesis 46, uh, verse 8 and 11, and Exodus chapter 6, verses 18 and 20, and Numbers chapter 26, verse 58, is made very troublesome and I think irreconcilably confusing if the Egyptian bondage was longer than 215 years. If these arguments stand... We may take Stephen as merely quoting the words of God in Genesis 15 and the words of God as meaning that over the next 400 years from that time, Abraham's descendants would be brought into bondage in a strange land, and when the 400 years was over, God would set them free and bring them into Canaan. The 215-year captivity took place during this time. The seeming disparity between 400 and 430 is of no concern when we realize how common it was in that culture and time to round numbers for simplicity, which is something we see all throughout the Bible, and it does not challenge the biblical concept of inerrancy. In Acts chapter 7, verses 11 through 14, Stephen says, now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first, and the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent 
and called his father, Jacob, and all his relatives to him, seventy-five people. The problem here is that in Genesis 46 and verse 27, the Bible says all the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were seventy. So what was it? Seventy or seventy-five? Of course, we might conclude that Moses is simply rounding the number, as we did a moment ago with a similar close numerical conflict, but there may be another issue here. Stephen seems to be citing the Greek editions of Genesis, which do not report a contradiction with the Hebrew, but merely a different form of calculation. The Greek versions included the names of the two sons of Ephraim, two sons of Manasseh, and one grandson of Ephraim, and the reason that they excluded from the Hebrew is that technically they were already in Egypt, being the descendants of Joseph himself. This is no great problem, because the Hebrew counts Ur and Onan, the sons of Judah, who had died in Canaan in Genesis 46 and verse 12. So technically, only 68 living people in the family of Jacob entered into Egypt, but we're not interested in arguing with the choice of who was included and who was not, as we're simply wanting to understand that there is no error here, not even an error of five. The next issue comes from Acts chapter 7, verses 15 through 16. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. The problem, it is asserted, is that Genesis fifty twelve through 14 says, So his, that is, Jacob's sons, did for him just as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt. So was Jacob buried in Shechem or in the cave of Machpelah near Hebron. There's a fairly simple solution which is often the case with alleged Bible discrepancies. Jacob is not included in the they who Stephen mentions. Jacob had already been buried by Joseph and his brothers. Rather, Stephen is speaking of the burial of the sons of Jacob, whom he calls our fathers. In Joshua 12.32, the Bible says, "...the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt," They buried at Shechem, in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for one hundred pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. Stephen simply informs that the bones of the other patriarchs were carried and buried along with Joseph at this same time. Now somebody may ask, well, how did Stephen get that information? But this is not the only time Stephen's sermon sheds light on biblical history that cannot be explicitly drawn from the sacred scripture. Think of some of the details about Moses' experience in Egypt. Yet we have no reason to doubt him. Remember, he dealt with history and tradition, but he was inspired by the Holy Spirit in the selection of whatever material he had from whatever source he drew it. 
if he incorporated traditional details from the lives of great men and women of the Bible or the history of Israel that weren't included under the writings of Moses, he did so under the Spirit's direction, and thus in a way in which we may have full and unqualified confidence. Certainly none of this additional information is problematic or contradictory to what the Bible records do say, so we should simply receive it as additional insight into the ancient accounts that may and ought to be blended and harmonized with their testimonies. The last criticism against Stephen's sermon by those who seem determined to find errors in the Bible comes from this same discussion of the burial of the twelve patriarchs. But the issue is not where it happened or who was buried, but who bought the burial place. Stephen says it was Abraham, Acts 7 and verse 16, but Genesis thirty-three nineteen and Joshua fourteen thirty-two, which we read a moment ago, both say that it was Jacob who made the purchase. As with all of the other issues we've considered in this study, there are several possible solutions, but I think the best one for this matter is that like we saw with the reference to Terah leading the family out of Mesopotamia in Genesis, Stephen is ascribing the deed of a son to a prominent forefather, and that was perfectly acceptable in that culture and way of thinking. In all of the cases we've noted, there could have been other responses offered, and it's possible that some listeners would have preferred a different approach to the one that I chose. If you have a solution that's particularly impressive to you, I would love to hear it and would welcome you sending it to me. But my real goal in this study was simply to show that the criticisms against the Bible, however troublesome and difficult they may sound in a moment, generally require only a little searching or careful reading for the answer, and several possible answers will readily appear. Mark Moore well noted that Stephen was not accused of historical inaccuracy by his audience, and they were masters of the ancient biblical texts. Instead, the Bible says that his opponents found his teachings irresistible. Throughout history, the skeptics and critics of God's Word have found the same thing true of every line in the Holy Book. When I was a young man, Brother Ronnie Wade had me memorize a poem that I've cherished all through the years that celebrates the solid and unshakable authority and inerrancy of the Word of God. Last eve I passed by a blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring its vesper chime. And looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, asked I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And then, thought I, the anvil of God's word, for ages skeptics' blows have beat upon. But though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil still remains, the hammer's gone. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
You can contact us at Tulsa Church of Christ at gmail.com or visit Tulsa Church of Christ.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way. While we do His good will, while we do His good will, He abides with us still, He abides with us still. And with all who will trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey, stay, trust and obey, for there's no other way, no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey.